0: Welcome to another episode of Unguarded presented by Weevolve. I'm your host, Jory Davis. My guest today is current professional basketball player, Ashelle Tack from Dallas, Texas, by way of Sudan. She's an author of the reality behind the glamour of college athletics, a beautiful model, and an advocate for changing the narrative around sports and women's basketball in South Sudan. Not to sound cliche, but she is very woke and active in her community. Achelle was born in Sudan back in September 1993 before her family, parents, and three sisters escaped to Egypt in 2000 as refugees. Three years later, they moved to the United States so that they could get a better education. In the interview, we talk about her journey to America, not being able to speak English, and the obstacles she faced as a refugee, an African, and a dark-skinned woman in America. (laughs) Lord knows we could write a book on that topic alone. We also talked about her injuries and how during the time of struggle, she came out uh, stronger and better and connected to her faith in a new way. Tack has a great personality, and I'm sure y'all going to love this one. Here is a shell tack being unguarded. I thank you for coming to spend some time with me all the way from Dallas. How you doing?
1: I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing fine. How's it been for you? Man, it's been some interesting three months, actually, since I've been back from Greece, um, dealing with the pandemic, and then also, you know, with everything that's going on right now. Um, It's just, it's been a lot, honestly, but I think we're just taking it, you know, one day at a time.
0: Let's get into it. Let's start with the beginning of your journey. Let's start with you and your family, obviously, leaving Sudan to go to Egypt. I know you were very young during that time, but what are some details or some stories that really stuck with you as you started your journey?
1: Well, you know, um, I was originally born in South Sudan. And then I believe that I was like two or three years old, maybe even a little bit younger than that. We moved to Egypt and uh, my parents made the decision to move from Sudan to Egypt, you know, for opportunities. And um, they thought schooling wise, that'd be the best option. And then we got to Egypt. We were there for about three or four years or so. And then my parents decided that they wanted to move to the States so we can get a better education. And that was their drive the whole time. And so with that thought in mind, we moved to America and I was about nine years old and uh, basically put into the schooling system. I didn't really know any English at all. <laughs> um, and so it was just a whole, honestly, coming to America was just a whole new experience in terms of the culture, the environment, the people, having to learn the language, you know, and communicate while you're learning the language. That was hard as well. And they put me in the third grade, I believe, because even though I was nine, so I couldn't really like go to, you know, they couldn't put me in kindergarten or first grade or anything like that because of my age. So I started out in the third grade, I believe. And
0: you get to Dallas, you don't speak English. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And as we know, America, when it comes to, just dark skinned individuals in general, but you're you're African, you're dark skinned woman, and during that time that wasn't the wave as it is now. What do you recall when you got to America and how were how were you accepted at that time when you arrived?
1: So it was different in a sense of people looked at me in a different way than when people looked at me when I was in Egypt. So In Sudan, everybody looks like me, right? We're all from different tribes, but essentially we all look the same. So when we look at each other, we're not saying, oh, wait, look, you know, that person looks, you know, different or whatever. I moved to Egypt and, you know, there's some Arabs in Egypt. So now I'm beginning to, I was still young, but I'm starting to understand that, hey, there are people out there that look different than you in terms of race and color, right? Mm -hmm. Then I moved to the States. And the States was obviously more diverse than me than, you know, than when I was in Egypt and I, people basically started, I don't know the, the, it's like the attention I got was very weird and awkward. And people were basically, I, in my head, I was thinking, people were thinking like, where does she come from? You know what I mean? And the crazy thing is, A lot of people can tell when you're African, but they can't tell where in Africa you're from. So a lot of people think that Africa is is a country and everybody that's African is from the same place. Yeah. What people don't understand is the continent all from different places. So because I'm African and I'm mostly darker than the other Africans. They're like, okay, you can't be from Africa or where in Africa are you from? So I'm getting these weird looks and, you know, they're calling, you know, when I was you know um, younger, when I was in like elementary or whatever, you know, kids would be like African booty scratcher and just throwing out stuff that I thought was just bizarre and really weird to hear because I've never heard anything like that ever in my life before coming to America. Right. You know what I mean? So interacting with kids and, and getting to know the culture was hard and and it was different it was difficult but essentially it got better because I feel like society started accepting Africans at some point (laughs) yeah it it was kind of rough growing up in terms of you know how they viewed Africans and what they thought you know from the media what they got from the media what people thought Africa was like and that's how they viewed us as people so that was tough to deal with
0: yeah I mean I think a lot of us are ignorant in the fact of knowing Africa and knowing that it's a continent and knowing the different areas of Africa um, and and how they are all very different (laughs) so yeah I know I know I myself you know I don't know can grasp all the different pieces and parts of Africa so I can imagine those that you know were ignorant in the sense of trying to figure out where you come from uh, had to be a little bit (laughs) discouraging (laughs) or annoying how was that first year for you guys as a family
1: well we we were uh we were lucky only because we already had relatives that were down here um and they were okay. down here for for a while so they were already emerged within the culture like the american culture all of that so when we came it wasn't like we had to figure everything out on our own even though we had to at the same time if that makes sense. So because our uncle was already down here, he kind of um, initiated the process of getting, you know, Emerge into the culture like what we needed to know what we needed to do on a daily basis, you know paperwork what we needed So on my parents side, it was more so like finding work, you know, make sure they have the correct paperwork You know when we first came here, we uh, what is it called? Um, we had a residential card I I forgot what it's actually called. So we weren't citizens, obviously Mm -hmm. um, I think you have to spend a certain amount of years in the states before you can apply for citizenship and we didn't get that till later on. So we had a resident card. And, you know, if you were to apply for work or school, like you had to provide those paperwork to, to let them know, hey, you're documented, you're here legally, um, and you can do the things that you can do. And our our end, it was more so, you know, finding a school, being able to get into school and to start learning everything that we need to learn to be able to make a living in the States, you know. Um, as kids, you know, at at that matter as kids. Um, and so I know, I remember they put me in ESL, which stands for English second language, um, Mm -hmm. just to get me caught up with everybody else within my age, my age range, my age group. Um, and so it was like extra school on top of the school that I was already, you know, um, doing just to get me up to speed. Um, but that's how the process was like for us, honestly.
0: It's, it's common because some of my, classmates when i lived in rochester you know i had some friends that were nigerian some were from african descent of course new york you have a lot of families that are from african descent that come over and usually it's a family member comes over first um but i do know that the families are very connected and Mm -hmm. within the african culture i know education is very very important like they take it very seriously. Seriously. Um, (laughs) Yeah. How was that? Like, how was, like, was there a lot of pressure from your family? Like, (laughs) Hey, you, we, we came here to make sure you guys have a better life, a better education. Like what was the around education?
1: Well, speaking from, for the Sassanese community, I know we come, we say we come from nothing only because our country has been torn for so long, right? Mm -hmm. Just civil wars going on, people killing each other. And so because of that, we're, we weren't able to develop our country the way we needed to. Um, so a lot of people flee from South Sudan to find better opportunities. And for the older generation, like my parents, they try to set up their kids and give them an opportunity since they didn't have opportunities. That's the reason why people usually leave their home in terms of, you know, the South Sudanese community. And so when we came to the States, my parents was like, okay, yeah, they put education first, but there's a meaning be- behind putting that education first. And that meaning yeah. is, hey, I want you to have a better future you know, than I did. I want you to have a better life than I did. I want you to do something, you know, meaningful. So when you when you come back, you can provide something to your country. You know what I mean? And you can yeah. help out the way you can. It's hey, you're get this education so you can help rebuild our country.
0: For me, one thing I always wondered because when I lived in England, my mom had a I think she was I'm not sure if she was Nigerian or was she from um, Molly, but she was, in, we lived in London. And one thing she always said is that the African community felt the African American community was so uneducated on our roots and everything. And of course we feel like it's not technically our fault because, you know, we were taken <laughs> away from everything, yeah. but from you guys and your family, how, how was it like, what was the message around the African-American community, like, did they want you not to totally immerse yourself in the ways and how things were done in America? Like, what was that messaging like? What was the conversation like?
1: I think um, the perspective and the viewpoint that Africans have, and obviously I'm speaking on my behalf of, you know, the South Sudanese community, I think it's very distorted by the white culture and what they see before coming to the states Or what they see as soon as they come to the states So that's what mm-hmm. their entire viewpoint is And I want to say like The African culture is very prideful And they really are not about Changing their mindsets They're so stuck into their mindset. So once they believe something, they believe it And so right. coming to the states um In terms of like the African American And the African community and that relationship The African community Just saw what was on TV Right, what was put out right. there you know, kind of highlighting the black community. And once they saw how they were, you know, highlighting the black community, their viewpoint came from that light. And then they took that perspective and kind of made it a whole and started viewing everybody in that community the same, you know, thinking that they're all the same people. And so that viewpoint is then carried on through through their lives. And that's how they view everybody, even though that's not how everybody acts or that's not how everybody looks or that's not how everybody carries themselves if that makes sense you know
0: right it's definitely the same as as you know when when we come overseas a lot of our my teammates or whatnot a lot of their preconceived notions about black athletes or black african-americans in general is based off tv um this it's just they're just very naive in the fact that right <laughs> tv only portrays one part of of everything and i've traveled the world and i have a very diverse group of friends and, and everything but it's always interesting to have that conversation around the those that know their roots um mm-hmm. in a sense kind of you know Jealous of that fact, um, because as we get older, as African-Americans, you know, we long for that to kind of know our roots. And we we search for that, whereas you guys know your roots to some extent. But it's always that disconnect sometimes, I think, um, amongst the cultures, even though technically we all ultimately come from the same place at some point, you know. So but take me through. Your like your first time interacting with basketball. You didn't really know you you could get scholarships. I know basketball wasn't something that you had planned for. What was that first practice or that first week of basketball like for you
1: that it was very eye opening um Mm -hmm. and played basketball i started playing basketball freshman year and i did it because like it was one of those things i was like oh hey let me just try this as like an activity you know after school or something and i had no knowledge literally i didn't know too much about basketball i didn't know the rules i didn't know anything within that world and so it was just me hey let me just try and see how it goes and i literally sucked like i didn't know anything i looked (laughs) lost i was just (laughs) i was just like long lanky kid like um, uncoordinated, like all, everything you can think of, of like, <laughs> as, yeah. like a person that don't, doesn't know how to play basketball, that like, that was literally me. Um, and I really don't understand this, but my coach, um, that I hold dear to my heart, you know, till today, she, she just saw something that I, I don't know what she saw, but she saw something there and she went ahead and, um, uh, put me on the freshman team and that's how I developed. And it was, my development was literally crazy, not because I started playing basketball late, but because of where I started, you know, skills skills wise and all that. So how did you develop? Was it just your
0: coach putting in the time and you showing up every day? Like
1: well, in high school, you know, we don't really pra- practice outside of the hour the school hours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't really have any work with my coach outside of school. And when we were in school, it was a more of a team thing, you know? So it was be picking everything up on my own as we were practicing you know um and then as the years went on in high school my career um when I moved up to JV it's like the the levels that I moved up I learned so much more you know but nobody mm-hmm. was really working with me one-on-one and I didn't really start playing a I didn't even hear about AU basketball until the summer of junior year and it was just one of my teammates saying, hey, I'm playing on an AU team. Would you like to join? It wasn't like a formal coach reaching out to me. That song playing was like, hey, I'd like to have you on my AU team. It wasn't my high school coach saying, hey, you should play for this AU team to get better for us. It, was, it wasn't It was anything like that. It was my, you know, my friend who was also my teammate. Hey, I have this AU team that I play on. Would you like to play? Hey, sure. During the summer, I have nothing to do. Let's do it. Um, so that's how that started. And then the scholarships just came in after that. Um, that summer season.
0: That's crazy because Dallas, you know, that's like a hub for young talent. So crazy to hear that no one, you know, found you or whatever. But again, we can never question the plan or, you know, guy's plan and the journey he has you on. Um, then you obviously got a scholarship. What <clears throat> school did you get a scholarship to again?
1: I went to the University of North Texas.
0: A great, a good career, you know, and then now after you were done playing, How did you make it to Switzerland? Switzerland was your first year, correct?
1: Yes, it was my first year.
0: Yeah. So how did you how did you make it to Switzerland after, you know, your college career and everything? How did you end up getting that first contract?
1: Well, throughout my college career, I knew I wanted to go pro. And I think everybody that was around me in terms of like coaches and my college career was very crazy just because I went through three different coaching changes. Um, so from that aspect of things, it was super crazy, but each one of them knew that I wanted to go pro. And so the last coach that I ended my senior season with, she set me up with an agent and I didn't even know about this. Like after the season, she already was, I guess she was already talking to an agent and you know, in the coaching world, they have a lot of connections. So she was able to connect me with this agent and the agent reached out to me. We had a really long chat, you know, she, you know, uh, found out what I wanted to do kind of exchange our uh, visions and then I signed with um with them and got my first job in Switzerland and so that's how my pro season started
0: which agency was it
1: it was uh distribute the game with um Allison Gaylor uh
0: from the west she's from the west coast
1: I, I believe so yeah she's I think uh, she's uh, yeah she's from Cali
0: oh okay I think it's a newer agency right yeah she's, like
1: she's- a- I, I believe she started 2016. Um, I, that's when it was like up and going, I think. Cause that's mm-hmm. when she, that's when, I mean, she already had players signed before that point, but I think that's when it was really kicking off. And then after that point, you know, she got, she's gotten more players. She, I know she has a lot of WNBA girls um, on her roster.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I think I know. I think she has the Guma K sister, one of them. I think if that's yeah. the correct agency. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> How did you manage the, the the changes of the coaches during your college career? Because I know that's that's very difficult. It's a big thing now why so many players are transferring and everything.
1: So I like to be as transparent and honest as possible, just because if I can help someone with my testimony, then I can. I don't like to fake you know, talk just because that's the school I went to or whatever the case is. So being honest, um, I tried to transfer multiple times actually within my career. Um, my first, uh, so I signed to a coach and then that coach left before I got there. And so that's where like the challenges started because then I had to play under a coach that I, I didn't know. And they didn't know my playing style, like no relationship there whatsoever, And so my thought process was, okay. let me stay my freshman year, because if I back out now, I might not have a scholarship with everybody already signed. The school's already given out their scholarships. I might not have anybody or any school to fall back on if I decommit right now. And so and our athletic director at the time said that all the freshmen's already signed. um, They couldn't get out of their they couldn't get out of their um, scholarships unless the coach coming in, let them go. And Mm -hmm. as a freshman, I didn't know a lot of the rules, you know, so whatever they said was in my head, it was like, okay, I guess this is how it is. And so my freshman year, I stayed and the coaching staff was lovely in terms of, you know, as people. um, But as far as basketball, there were some challenges there. And so I was like, okay, let me stay my freshman year, then I'm going to dip my sophomore year. And so, uh, you know how at the end of the season, you have talks with coaches, you talk about the previous season, how it went, all of that. And so I had a talk with the coaching staff and we came to an agreement, an agreement that things were going to change for the better, you know. And so the vision that was sold to me after my freshman year, I believed in it, you know. And so I was like, okay, let me stay for another year, see how it goes. (laughs) And so my sophomore year was actually started off really great, you know, personally started off really great. And then I had a season ending injury. So at that point, you know, with how my injury was handled and and all that, I was like, okay, I want to go. But I couldn't because I was injured. So realistically speaking, I knew no school would want to pick up an injured player. You know what I mean?
0: How was I don't want to cut you off, but I want to I'm wondering how was the injury handled?
1: I just felt like um, people thought that I was more so faking the injury than actually being Mm -hmm. injured. Um, And it was viewed as a minor injury. And essentially it could have been a minor injury, but because it wasn't taken care of the way it should have, it turned into a bigger injury than, you know, um, it was supposed to be. Um, And so instead of like, you know, listening, I felt like instead of listening to what the doctor told me in terms of rest or certain things that should have been done, I was playing and practicing, which essentially made the injury worse. Um, mm-hmm. and then in long run, come to find out like, Hey, your, your season's done. And then you have to get right. surgery, you know? <laughs> so as a player that sets you back, if you have goals and aspirations of trying to make it pro, right? Like that, that matters. So I don't understand that, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the institution needs you for what they need you for. The rest is, is up to you, um, after that. So it happens a lot. You hear it a lot. I was just talking to a friend as well about his injury. He played football with the school and the injury wasn't taken care of the right way. And so he ended up hurting it again and then, you know, went to other sources to get it taken care of. But injuries are no joke, especially at a young age and especially if you want to go to the next level. So, okay, you're finally on your third coach, right? By your senior year.
1: Yeah. Third coach. Mm -hmm.
0: How was that last year? Was it still bumpy or was it? a good connection between you and the coach
1: uh between me and the coach it was a great connection um but it was also challenging just because um you have a coach coming in trying to change the culture and the environment of the Mm -hmm. you know the team and the program and they're trying to win games and so for coaches coming into like situations or programs that aren't like as successful as they should be it's tough on them and it's tough on the athletes as well you know so it was more so of a learning curve. I did have a great, like, a be- I wouldn't say a great season, but I had a better seasons than I did the past, you know, the years that I was at, at the school. And, and it wasn't, it was never like, it was never the the talent that we lacked. It it wasn't, we didn't lack talent. We didn't lack It was more so just the buying in aspect of it, you know, and the investment into the program, you know, both by players and coaches. I believe it was just it was just stuff that could have been taken care of, I feel like, is why we didn't experience the type of success we should have experienced because we had talented players every year I was there. We had super talented players every year, you know, I was there. So it was the culture and, you know, that coach, my senior year came in and, you know, she was trying to change the culture, the environment. She was trying to assess the players who were there to be there and who was just there to just, you know, be there, you know. Um, And so definitely had a better uh, senior year. It's tough.
0: Coaches are also under a lot of pressure and they put mm-hmm. that pressure on players and they try to force their hand on things instead of letting things happen organically and it just <laughs> for some it just doesn't work out but you know it, it seems the more i talk to players especially at the pro level man the stories are kind of consistent and <laughs> yeah you know you never know when it's going to change but you go over to switzerland and i know you dealt with the injury in college but you also get injured again correct your your first yes. year <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so I let's what? Yeah. Let's talk. T- tell us about that story,
1: man. So like um, my first pro season, I was on a very good team having a great season. Personally, um, I liked my coach, my teammates, everything was good. And so we get into playoffs. Right. And it's the it's really the tough. second round. And it was the second round, third game. If we would have won that third game, would have moved on to the mm-hmm. finals. And so I'm in practice and I literally, it's, it's so crazy. Cause it's like, I, it's like, it happened so fast. I don't actually remember why or how it happened. I just remember going up for a layup. I come down, I somehow fall and I look at my foot and I'm the type of player. Like I twist my ankle a lot. I just have Burn. weak ankles. So when I felt it, I just felt like it was an ankle sprain. I was like, Oh my gosh, that hurts. You know, I'm, I looked down. And it's literally my foot. I dislocated my foot and the bone was sticking to the side of my shoe on the inside of my shoe. So, and it felt like my foot was snapped in half. Like that's how it felt. Obviously my foot wasn't snapped in half, but that's how it felt. Oh
0: my goodness.
1: Yes. It was, uh, the pain was, oh my gosh. And then it hit me. I was like, oh my gosh. So in my head, I was thinking, what if I just broke my foot in half? You know, that's, that's what I felt. And so they rushed me to the hospital, to the emergency room. You know, I got seen by the doctor. He evaluated my foot and everything. And he was like, hey, you have a lisfranc fracture. It's very rare. A lot of players don't actually get it. And the players that do get it are usually football players. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was crazy how that happened in that timing. Um, And so they're able to operate and uh, put the bones back in place, um, needle the bones back in place. And so they needled them down. And then they told me that I had to get a second surgery to get the needles out. It was a, it was very exhausting mentally. I just, I, I was mentally just like exhausted. Um, my faith was weighing down. It was like, I in my head, I was thinking, okay, what if I never walk again, you know, or what if I never mm-hmm. play again, you know, what are the next steps for me? And that's when that whole conversation in my head started
0: was, I mean, of course, I'm sure your family and, and everyone, but of course you're overseas. So what was that like for you? How, how, f- how long were you in Switzerland? Did you immediately go back home? But most importantly, how did you deal with that doubt, that lacking your faith during that time? Like, how did you deal and cope with that? all those emotions?
1: So my season was set to end, in, and my injury happened in April. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the club was very supportive. You know, my coaches supported my teammates, everything. You know, mentally, I was actually... My mental state was in a very cheerful place when I was around, when I was still in Switzerland, just because I was around my teammates, you know, they were helping me out, my coaches, all that, just positive vibes everywhere. Um, So my first, my first surgery was in Switzerland. And so they decided, hey, I can go home. But with the surgery being so close, it wouldn't be a good option. So they told me to stay, you know, and I agreed to stay until the end of the season. And so after the season, that's when I went back to the States in May. Uh-huh. And when I got home, I didn't really um, I'm on, I'm not one of those people that really announces anything, you know So I didn't really put it on social media or anything. I didn't tell people it was just like me dealing with it Obviously, my I didn't even tell my mom till I got to the States because I was scared of what she was gonna say and think <laughs> um, Wow, what you? Yeah. I mean
0: scared of what like that? She would be like, oh my
1: god or I was well first. Um, my mom is very supportive of my basketball career but she's also one of those uh, worrying parents, you know, that where worries a lot. And since I've already uh, had okay. an injury, since I already yeah. had an injury, she's like, okay, I don't want you to get injured again, you know, and all that. So I was scared that she was going to be like, you know what? No, no more injuries, you're done, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I was scared of. So I didn't really tell her till I got, you know, home. <laughs> that was interesting. It was, it was hard dealing with it, honestly, mentally. It took a toll on my mental state um, and, you know, being not being able to move on your own or be mobile and having to rely on people. Obviously I appreciate my family for everything they,
0: you know, you're going through a hard time, but when did you, you know, start to strongly into your faith per se? Was it something that you grew up with? It was just something that, you know, was big in your family, you know, how did, how did that come into play and play a big part of your life?
1: Uh, My family is based on faith my family values are based on faith. And so I grew up on faith, Um, but it was at first it was more so something that I did just because our parents wanted us to do as far as like going to church, you know, um, being a Christian, all of that. I stepped into my faith um, and established our relationship um, with, uh, with God when I got to college, you know, because as an athlete, when you're, or just as a person period, when you're dealing with bad times, you want to turn to, to hope, you know, You want to turn to something that can help you cope with whatever you're going through, and to help guide you. And for me, that was by faith, and so I turned to God. And um, so, but it wasn't my faith was still not as strong as it could have been. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. So it's not until it wasn't until my this uh, my last injury. Well, the injury I got in Switzerland that I really wholeheartedly stepped into my faith, like just, and it wasn't just, Hey, you know, I go to church every Sunday and I read the Bible It was more so me establishing a strong relationship with God. You know, it was, it's so crazy. So when I, when I uh, was going through my injury, I met this, this person called Samuel Abraham, you know, and he actually turned out to be my mentor, but we met, you know, we're just talking about, you know, everyday life things and getting to know each other. And then he found out that I was a believer. And so we ta- we started talking about that. He asked me questions of what church I attended. I told him, we talked about that. And then he invited me to his church, you know, um, because I didn't really have a church home. I was kind of bouncing from church to church, trying to find a church home and he asked me to come to his church and I went and it was amazing, you know, because okay. there are certain churches that you just automatically attract to And then there's certain churches that are just that you don't really resonate with like that, you know? And so I went to his church and it was amazing. And we started talking about everything faith-based. And that's where I really started to strengthen my relationship with God. And it transitioned over to my basketball world and everything that I deal with basketball and just in life period, instead of thinking, why did this happen to me? I, I started thinking like, what's the purpose in this? You know, what what's coming out of this? You know, what? why was I paused? What was I supposed to do with that timing that stopped me from being selfish within my own self of worrying about right. my career? What did I do for, for other people? What did I do in that timing that meant something to someone else?
0: Did you discover that? Why uh, or what you thought? Because again, we, we can never, we never really can, as they say, question God, we'll never really know full heartedly Mm -hmm. Why from your um, time and that discovery process, what are some things you felt was the why behind that struggle?
1: Actually, that why was answered to me. And it was so crazy because looking back, when I was going through it, it didn't make sense, you know. Mm -hmm. But when I came out of it or started coming out of it and started waking up, I understood why. Because in that timing, I was able to influence a lot of lives in different ways. I also wrote my book, my first book, um, The Reality Behind the Glamour of College Athletics. And that time period opened up my eyes to what I was truly supposed to do in terms of my purpose (laughs) And not my personal goals or aspirations You know And so like in that timing I connected with a lot of athletes You know talked about different topics I was able to help my sisters um, With college things You know I was uh, I started being more involved Within my own community You know that you know Starting a a team uh, You know with the federation With our federation Things like that That I felt like I would have Never had the time to do When I was playing just that time just gave me the time to be able to focus on those things and not be in my own head about my own career or what I was supposed to do next, you know? And I think sometimes in life, you need that pause to look back and, and think of all the things you've done and kind of appreciate a lot of things and then start some of the visions that you have.
0: Definitely. I didn't know. So you started, you wrote the book during that down period I after did, your injury. Yes. Oh mm-hmm. man, that's that's amazing. And Let's talk about your your hopes for women's basketball in South Sudan.
1: Personally speaking, in terms of my community, there was only two professional um, women's basketball players from South Sudan that were playing uh, at the time. You know, I don't know if you know who a Ad- Adut Bolgag is. Nope. She played at for- Florida State, and she played for the New York Liberty, um, I believe, in twenty sixteen. Um, So she played in the in the league and now she plays in Israel. So it was her and me. We're the only known basketball girls in the South Sudanese community that were that were playing, you know, uh, professional sports. And so, you know, I look at different countries and I'm like, okay, everybody literally is is playing. There's a lot of people from those certain countries that are playing. You know what I mean? They have their own federation. They have their, you know, FIBA tournaments. They have their Afro basket tournaments you know they're right. playing in these leagues and i'm like okay we need more of us playing as well we need our own team in right. south sudan i believe that that would help that would help build our country you know being able to provide south sudan with a basketball powerhouse you know what i mean and right. there was a lot of us in terms of men we had a lot of men competing a lot there's a lot of them in the nba there's a lot of them that play in australia currently there's a lot of them in college getting scholarships but when you hear about women, there's not a lot of us out there, you know? Yeah. And and it's because our mostly our parents are just concerned with the girls getting an education and taking care of home. You know, they don't really are, there aren't, they're not really pro pro basketball or pro sports when it came to women. My thought process was why not, why not get the girls involved in sports? You know, there's so many benefits that come from this. And so looking from that viewpoint, I was inspired to be able to start speaking out about having a women's team. But at the time it was about a year or two ago, our federation was really not consistent they were not really relevant. And so whenever Luol Dang, you know, former um, Bulls uh, basketball player, when he took over the federation and he started making changes, I was like, hey, we have a chance now, you know? Yeah, so definitely. <laughs> <laughs> we have a chance now. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's time to start pitching these ideas of having a women's team, a national women's team. So we are able to compete. And there's so many of us right now in college that got scholarship. To UConn, to Butler, to TCU. So a lot of a lot of the kids that are looking up to us are are um, getting that opportunity now, and they're being inspired to play college basketball and then look at the professional world, you know. And so that's where my vision came from. And obviously, I had people along the way that had the same vision I did. So we just were communicating back and forth. And then you know um, when the federation took over they're talking about actually, you know, having a women's team. So that's in the works. And obviously the pandemic and everything kind of put a stop to a lot of things, but there's a lot of great stuff coming for the women's team. And I'm very excited about it.
0: I think it's in general, women's basketball needs to continue to grow. And truthfully, in my opinion, I think the African athletes gonna kill as they say, the African-American athletes. I've had this conversation with one of my teammates who's from Mali. I played with her in Valencia. And I was just like, man, Maya, you know, they talk about the African-American athletes, but I'm like, y'all, y'all, y'all bad on the court, man. Like strong, (laughs) athletic, but also, you know, when once the technical side continues to grow, it's, Mm is it's it's crazy um truthfully and I and I know when it comes to skill development and everything that's starting to grow which is another step for Mm -hmm. the basketball community in Africa but uh, let's let's talk about your book what really inspired you to to do the book
1: um I think the initial came from my own personal journey came out of that and my thing is athletics that are spit into the system each and every year they're coming out with nothing on the other end you know because we all know that only a certain percentage of you know athletes go pro you know but what about the other ones nobody ever asked the question of what what are the other athletes doing that didn't go pro you know what i mean right look really is just highlighting the reality of being a student athlete within the system of college athletics and then Aside from that, it kind of just inspires and educates and prepare athletes that are going to that system. And um, it also addresses important topics that need to, you know, be addressed like academics. What are these athletes majoring in? You know, a lot of athletes major in um, business administration or kinesiology, you know, the common, the common degrees that athletes, you know, uh, major in. But are they really pursuing anything in that after college? They have jobs after, you know. What percentage of athletes that graduate from that program actually have jobs or are doing something with their lives outside of athletics? Um, and a lot of people don't look at that at all. A lot of people don't question that. It's like, hey, we're only the only thing we're worried about is just the graduation rate. If you're if you have a lot of athletes, 15 plus athletes, you know, um, that are taking the same major just to take it, obviously they're gonna graduate and your graduation rate is gonna be high. But if they have nothing to fall back on after they graduate your program, you have literally just did them a disservice. You know, you didn't really try to help them grow in the best way possible so they can prepare themselves for that next step. That real world that we talk about, you know, Um, a lot of athletes that actually go into college that are getting scholarship. They don't know how to communicate with college coaches when they're being recruited. They don't know what questions to ask. They're just going into blind and they're picking schools that don't really fit with them and right. then you see and then you see all the transferring happen well the base of it is recruitment and how that goes you know what i mean in order to change the system we have to, we as athletes have to speak out and we have to be mm-hmm. transparent and you have to do it in a way obviously where you're professional you know and you're not really bashing and like an institution you're not bashing a program you're not bashing a coach but more so using your voice to say hey this was my experience this is my testimony and this is what i went through this is how I can help you because I've been through that. Try and avoid this. You know what I mean. And try to prepare yourself this way so you can experience the the amount of success that you want to experience. You know. And a lot of us are really scared to use our voices. We're scared to speak out. And then once someone speaks out, we're like, oh my gosh, I had the same experience. You know. Yeah. Well, usually, <laughs> you, you know what I mean. We all have the same experiences, but we're like silent about it. You know. And I think the system is very much broken. It, it does not really help athletes it's not designed for athletes i don't think it's designed for athletes to be successful if you really look at it a lot of athletes are like i said before spit into that system and come out with with nothing at the end of the day like if i if i come from a community that's really broken and this is my chance i get a free scholarship to go to college and get this degree. And I go, I go into a program, right? And I'm really relying on this coach that has me for four years to be able to be my mentor outside of just athletics to really help me um, and grow me as a person. And they don't do that. And I'm being misled from, you know, an advising point of what I should be doing in college because these are kids in college. They don't mm-hmm. know what they're doing. They're being misled. And I graduate with a degree that holds no weight, no purpose what am I gonna do? How am I gonna how am I gonna go back into my community? How am I supposed to face my community? How am I supposed to help? You know, how am I supposed to help my family? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So it goes
1: way, it's much bigger than what we think it is.
0: Yeah, it's an ongoing cycle. It's not surprise that everyone has a degree in kinesiology or sport communication or whatever that might be. Um Mm -hmm. I know for me, I started out wanting to do business, but because the workload Was so extreme, especially at the time. Indiana University had the number one business school in the country. So it was, you know, a top level business school. But I came in needing to be that next star athlete. And no one said, "Okay, Jory. Let's figure out and help you balance it. It was more mm-hmm. so, well, well, go get this degree. It's some of the same classes, you know, right. it wasn't the same classes. It's not the same thing of coming <laughs> out of school with a business degree from the Kelly School of Business.
1: <laughs> <Degree>. <laughs>
0: you know, it's not the same. And that's the power of a mentorship because someone else who really cared to invest into me or anyone else, my teammates would have. Taking the time to say, no, you need to do this and let's create a plan to help you. And they try to put it on the athlete when you're done and you're like looking back like, man, I shouldn't have done this. But also you're young. You're young and it's all new and you're trying to balance. You do have goals that you want to go pro. It's not that you just want to go pro and you don't care about education. You do because you're still doing it, but you just can't completely build out that plan by yourself, we can talk about systems. And of course, I recently saw that you were out in Dallas, you know, you went (laughs) to rally with the people and everything going on. What's, what's your feelings around that? I I saw um, also a recent guy on your Twitter you know, recently blocked you and everything around I guess he blocked you due to you speaking out. Um mm-hmm. what's your feelings around everything going on and, and those that
1: Well man, I think honestly it's just disheartening to to watch mm-hmm. and be, you know, a part of and this is happening all in, you know, in this timing of us growing into, you know, adults and and it's just it's super sad to see people trying to be politically correct versus actually putting their true feelings out there and not worrying about how people are gonna view them. And I've seen that okay. so much on the platform. It's it's people saying stuff that they feel like is right and people will agree with versus what they truly believe, you know? Okay. And coming from just a, just a human mind and aspect, you should never be okay with another human being killing another human being. Like yes. that's just not, that, that's not okay. Like taking away race from it and all of that, like as a human being, I think there would there's something wrong with you if you think it's okay for another human being to kill another human being. You know what I mean? It's just not right. You know, at all. Like psychologically, it's not correct. And so, I I, I I'm coming from that aspect. You know, I I support the Black community. I'm Black myself. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, you're you know you're African, so you don't really relate to us." And I think that's just the wrong viewpoint and perspective to have at all. Gotcha, um, yeah. You know, I get that a lot. Like, hey, you know, why are you for this cause? You're African. You know, your people are not being killed. Actually, my people are being killed. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, actually they are. You just don't hear that. Are. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So if you wanna if you want to make it personal in that way, yes, my people back home are being killed, and then my people here in the states are being killed. You know what I right. mean? Um, and so that this is something I believe in because I believe in standing up for something that's right and something that is just like, you You shouldn't want to just blend, blend in with society of what everybody believes. You shouldn't have to follow people, uh, because those people that you're following are following other people that are following people that don't know what they're doing. And so the other day, last night, actually, me and a couple of my friends were, because we've been speaking on this topic for so long, you know, the police brutality, you know, the killings in the Black community, and we just didn't agree with it. It just didn't sit right with us, you know. So instead of just Talking about it, we say, hey, let's put some action behind it. Let's find a peaceful protest out there, you know, because we're doing things. We're trying to do things the right way, you know, right. Um, And so say, hey, you know what, let's find a peaceful protest um, that's safe for everyone that's going to be around us and ourselves. Let's go out there and just voice out how we feel. Um, And so we went out, but we actually went out pretty late and we should have went out earlier because it got really chaotic at night. Uh Um, And the police officers were just not letting people really practice their first amendment or anything of that sort. Like they were not letting people protest or or speak out of, you know, how they felt. Um, there's like people with guns and there were like tear masks, tear gas everywhere. People were running, people were trying to destroy stuff. So it kind of just took away from our purpose of what we were trying to do. But there were moments in there where we got a group together and we told them, hey, this is what we believe in. We. This is what we're trying to do. We're not for the extra stuff. If you want to join us um, and amplify our voice, then let's let's band together. But if you're for everything else, then you should go follow those people in front of us, you know. So although it was chaotic and a lot of stuff did happen, we were still able to exercise our right a little bit to a certain extent with everything that was going on. And it really opened up my eyes because you see it on social media and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, is this really real? And then you go out on the field and you see it for yourself in reality.
0: I can't imagine the feeling of of going out there. I mean, it's you know, it's is. I'm sure it had to be eye opening
1: <laughs> for mm-hmm. you was and very, your friends. Yeah, eye opening and, and dangerous. And so being able to see it live and be a part of it was very eye-opening. I never thought in my 26 years of life, I would be a part of something like this, you know?
0: Part of me, I had a friend, you know, ask, oh, Jory, you know, why haven't you? I'm I'm curious to know why you haven't said anything. And, um, you know, the my feelings run so deep at this point, you know, as mm-hmm. part of me is like numb to certain pieces. And then part of me is like, I'm at that stage where I'm not in the riot stage. I'm in the, you know, I guess my capitalistic mind is like, let's build black wall streets again. Let's figure out how do we, you know, change on a micro level. Let's, let's build our wealth. Let's build our uh, ownership and things. And, you know, that takes time, but I truly believe we will, we can't really progress until we assimilate until we unite. And I think yeah, that's the too. biggest thing, thing for us mm-hmm. right now. Like I, I know right now we're united in going, you know, do things out in the street and walk. But we need some real united uh, troops and people together. Like not just we go walk together like we need to be united in every front where whether it mm-hmm. be in our finances, helping each other in entrepreneurship, you know, like that's the pe- that's where I am. You know, and that's Mm -hmm. been my thought process, even with Weevolve, you know, the whole collective of athletes. You know, of course, we we want to bring in all cultures (laughs) from when it comes to the athlete, because the athlete has their own struggles um, when it's against the system. It starts on, as I said, I think I tweeted it like start with your tribe. You know, if it's just a small city, start there you know on a mm-hmm. micro level and, and and start to create change in your home first you know like that's mm-hmm. it all starts there and as we're going to wrap up uh with a segment we call starting five and i'll ask you a question and you just answer uh with one word or you know one line of why you like this particular topic um so we'll start off You know, what's your favorite? Who is your favorite singer or rapper? Drake. Okay. Why? Why? You just like the melody?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that man really be speaking like his lyrics make sense. Um, Mm -hmm. You can resonate with them. It's not just like a, a mumble rap or anything like that. Like his words actually mean something. You know what I mean? They have meaning and purpose behind it. And obviously he does have some songs that are like more entertainment based, you know? But there are some g- raps in there that are about real his real life stuff that you can actually like hey like I I went through this or I'm going through this right now or I know someone that went through this. You know what I mean? And I, I like right. music that has meaning. I like, like listen to music that has meaning.
0: Uh next one, what's your favorite city?
1: Dallas, Texas. <laughs> 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 Dallas, Texas.
0: What you talking? About. <laughs> Oh man! All right, so you sticking? You sticking with Dallas?
1: I'm sticking with home, man.
0: (laughs) Okay, got you. Uh, What's your favorite book? Or you can just give like one of your most recent favorite because I know a lot of people they have a number of books that they like.
1: The Alchemist. I just recently read that, and I was like, oh my gosh! Like my eyes were open. And and the crazy thing is, you find stuff that you could have been discovered like a long time ago and you're just now (laughs) discovering it and you're like wow where was I this whole time (laughs) you know yeah I think yeah
0: the (laughs) alchemist is a great book great book Um, a great
1: great book yes
0: yeah it's a classic one uh let's favorite
1: movie I don't think I have a favorite movie is this weird no 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 I have one I have one the (laughs) vow (laughs) the vow yes so cute. I haven't, I haven't
0: watched that one yet. So you like the little romantic, you like the lovey-dovey romantic movies?
1: No, but I like that movie. <laughs> that movie. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to check it out there because I've never you seen should.
0: it. You should. Last one. Your first celebrity crush. Kevin Durant. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Durant. Man. Yes.
1: His little
0: skinny self just get all of the, <laughs> the ladies up. Huh?
1: You know, I think he's handsome. A lot of people hate on him, but I think he's a really handsome man. You know, Um, I've had a crush on him since um, high school. And you know what the crazy thing is or the most interesting thing is my college coach actually got me to FaceTime Kevin Durant when I was in college. What? Yes, I FaceTimed him because, you know, he went to Texas and my college coach, who's still currently the um, head coach at the University of North Texas. Mm -hmm. obviously they have that connection and so it was around my birthday and she knew like I literally was in love with this man you know um and so she surprised me for my birthday and got me a FaceTime while we were doing community service and I was so mad because I I looked a hot mess that could have been my (laughs) opportunity
0: (laughs) well I think he's still on the market so you know you never know you might have another opportunity if it's if it's in the The works if the universe says it's for (laughs) you it's gonna be for you
1: (laughs) I just gotta be courtside somewhere
0: (laughs) somewhere but I thank you for the conversation it was a great one at that Um, I love the full transparency I love you know your mission and your everything you're doing uh, for women's basketball and for those coming up next, so I just want to thank you for for coming on and spending some time with me on the Unguarded podcast.
1: Yeah, it was definitely an honor. Thank you for having me on, and just to you know turn it back turn this back on you. I think everything that you're doing is wonderful. You know, um, taking the time out of the way that you're doing to want to help the, our community, you know, in the athletic is very inspiring and something a lot of people should really um, tune into. And tap into because this is helping the next generation. You know what I mean? And a lot of people are not this invested, you know? And, and so I, I I think you're a leader. I think you're doing great things. And I support you 100%, you know, that you want me to do to be able to get the word out. I'm here, you know? Thank you for taking the steps to be able to start this and initiate this and, you know, start this change and this process. It's, it's, it's really amazing, you know? Um, and so I'm, I'm all for this. I'm behind it. Awesome.